Love, Recovery, and Rock and Roll, stories of addiction, recovery on both sides of the fence, those in addiction, battling addiction, recovering from addiction, and the people who love them. I'm Chris. And I'm Amy. And today we've got a very special guest, a man who's very dear to my heart, Mr. Dennis Woodruff. This man has been a big part of my recovery right from the beginning. He was the first clinician that I spoke with when I entered residential treatment, just happened to be the on-call therapist. He's also the director of IOP, which I went through for eight weeks, and uh, handles the aftercare program for Turning Point for now. He's leaving me, abandonment issues coming out. (laughs) Um, Dennis, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here. Today we want to talk about uh, the midbrain and its role in addiction. And uh, Dennis has, uh, I've, I've heard him talk about this uh, in a few different group settings. And, and I believe Amy has heard this as well. I, I believe you were there. Yeah, I believe this was done at a family group. And it was so informational and really helpful from this perspective of the loved one to understand the midbrain. So I think this will be a great discussion for everybody who is either in addiction recovering or those loved ones and friends and family. So Dennis, give just give us a little quick background on you, where you're from, what you're currently doing, and where you're headed. Uh, born and raised in southern Alberta, Canada. Um, I lived for two years in southern California and then uh, came down to Utah to school and I've lived here ever since. Interestingly enough, when I was in undergrad, I wanted to be a dentist. I know, that's weird, right? Dennis the dentist. It it works. (laughs) It does have a nice roll of the tongue. I had much too much fun in undergrad, and my science GPA wasn't conducive to getting into a dental school. And so I just wound up in logistics and manufacturing for about 25 years. I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I thought that maybe at some point it's time for some more education. My wife had just completed uh, the clinical mental health counseling program at the University of Phoenix. And I thought, hmm, that sounds good. And so I started there and uh, about seven and a half years ago, I finished. That's what brings me now. I've only ever worked at Turning Point. I've only ever worked in mental health, in addiction and recovery. And I don't see that changing. I love it way too much to go anywhere else. Well, I'm glad that you didn't make it as a dentist. It benefited me for sure. Uh, Talking about the brain, I usually preface this with the clients in an an effort to uh, encourage them to have their families come by saying, if there's anybody in your family or your social support that's ever made the observation, okay, so your life is falling apart and you lost a job and your family hates you and just things are going horrible. Why don't you just stop drinking? Um, I tell them, bring your family because we're going to answer that question with a vengeance. And so it's basically just a conversation about two parts of the brain, prefrontal cortex and the midbrain. Prefrontal cortex, right now you're, you're thinking whatever you're thinking, you're thinking this drink is really tasty or this guy's voice looks like, sounds like this. 
Um, that's prefrontal cortex. It's also part of impulse control, um, logic, reasoning, the ability to look at data and make an informed decision about what to do. But it's not very emotional, which is a key component of that. The other part of the brain that we talk about is the midbrain, which is, they call it the reptilian brain or the caveman brain. Um, it's, uh, its job is to keep me alive. Um, and so it's going to help me determine what my response to stress or danger is. So flight, fight, or freeze. It's also programmed to avoid pain and to seek pleasure. Anything that feels good, you know, if you scratch your back on the corner of the door frame like I do, that's, ooh, we got midbrain action going on because my midbrain's like, oh, that's nice. Jump in if you have any questions. No, uh, we'll fire away for sure. Okay. Um, I think it's a really important thing to note because, you know, you talked a lot about family members going, hey, why don't you just stop? I know, Chris, you had a family member say, gosh, you should just stop. I mean, come on, man. I mean, if I have a drink from time to time, I don't take it overboard. Why can't you just quit? You know, I mean, a lot of people feel that way who've never experienced addiction. And, and it's easy to think that as well. I, I I have some empathy for that side of it, for sure. But this midbrain thing certainly sheds some light on it. And anybody who's willing to listen to it and and take an open mind going into it. I think not just the midbrain talk, but uh, a couple others that were given throughout my treatment, I found, you know, were very helpful to me for my family to get to hear those type of things. So, um, you know, nobody swallows that first pill or takes that first drink with the intent of becoming addicted. And so this really helps explain how that process happens over time. Right. And this whole conversation is maybe a conversation on how that happens over time, because there seems to be a, a lot of conversation about, well, is it a choice or is it a disease? And there's plenty of people that are following the trail of thought in that, well, it's a choice because I can choose to drink or I can choose to use. And, uh, and as you just said, I would agree, um, the first drink might be a choice. The first several hundred or thousand might be a choice, but at some point, it's no longer a choice. And that's why, that's where the midbrain comes into. So it's important to understand that whole survival aspect of the midbrain, because um, we'll come back and talk about that in just a second. Um, so usually then what I do is I just talk to, uh, I, I get, the, I get the, the group, the audience to help me define a list of things that I need to survive. Water, right? Absolutely. Yep. I got to have water. Oxygen. Got to have air. Shelter. Got to have shelter or protection. Football. <laughs> <laughs> that depends. That depends on who your team is. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, other things like food. Food, definitely. Clothing. Um, and that would fall under protection. D definitely need clothing if, uh, you know, especially if I'm going to be in the high Uentas in February. Some other things that sometimes take a while for people to get would be sleep. If I don't get sleep, I'm going to start seeing things and be a danger to myself and others. And uh, I also list sex and I put a little asterisk and people always snicker and I say, well, 
if I don't, <laughs> if I don't have sex, I'm probably not going to die. I might want to die or think I'm dying, but I'm not going to die. But if the human race as a whole stops having sex, then we got problems. But the reason why I also list that though is also because there's a midbrain component to sex. For most people, it's something that feels really good, and so the midbrain is like, oh man, this is really, you know. And so the, my midbrain, the first time I experience sex or sexual pleasure, my midbrain's like, hey, this is really cool. We got to do this again. So there's going to be usually a desire to continue that, which, you know, is good for the proliferation of the species. Um, And then I go from there to an entirely different topic of conversation. I talk about how all of us have what mental health science calls actuating events. Um, Those are traumas. And we can describe Big T traumas, which I'm sure that you can um, imagine. You probably have experienced big T traumas. They would be like a major loss or an accident or being in a a natural disaster. Um, Those folks who survived Hurricane Katrina, holy crap, big T trauma. Um, But big T trauma is really, really subjective because what might be big T trauma for me might not be for you. And so that varies from person to person. And I'd tell people when I was in residential, I'd have clients come in and say, Dennis, I had a really good childhood. Um, I wasn't abused by my father. My, my mother didn't like beat me. Uh, I, I wasn't molested in any way. I don't understand why I'm experiencing addiction. The overwhelming majority of those folks were correct. As I got to know their stories and I got to know their life histories, they didn't really have much like that. But what I did find is they had tons and tons and tons of little T trauma. The examples that I give of those two is that growing up in Southern Alberta, it's very flat. The roads are very straight. I grew up in a rural community. The nearest movie theater was like an hour away. So we'd go into Lethbridge to see the seven o'clock show, the nine o'clock show. We'd go out to dinner. We'd muck around in the restaurant. I mean, not anything nefarious, but we just... We're high school kids. We're screwing around and taking our time. We're driving back home in the dark at 1.30 in the morning after just having a really big meal. You can imagine what might happen when there's nobody on the road and the road's really straight. Well, I go to sleep and I get into the ditch and oftentimes I'll overcorrect as I come back on the road. The car is rolling and because I don't have my seatbelt on, I maybe do a Superman thing out the window And even if I walk away from that accident, I think we can agree that that's a big T trauma. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Another example would be, um, I hated grade seven. It was a horrible year. I might've been bullied a little bit. I didn't feel like the teachers liked me. Um, It was a whole new course material. There's a big difference between elementary and junior high. Probably not big T trauma, but 10 months of little T trauma. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's the difference. It really in a subjective way of the difference of those two, two, those two traumas. Well, back to my client who would say, Dennis, I don't have any big T trauma. I don't know why I drink. What I would find, what would we would find together is that they had tons and tons of little T trauma that had been minimized over the years. And I think most people experience this to some extent. Um, Because minimization of little t trauma sounds like this. Well, that's just part of growing up. Or, well, when I was a kid, that happened to me. Or, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Put on your big girl panties and get over it. 
or whatever. And there's some accuracy to all of those statements, but it still minimizes little t trauma. And the important thing to rec- the the important thing to understand about big T and little t trauma is our brains being very binary don't know the difference. Trauma is trauma, mm-hmm. or the or the lack of trauma is the lack of trauma. And so, as with this client, what we'd find is that they had years or maybe decades of little t trauma that they hadn't considered were that much of an effect in their lives. And as we got further and further into those trauma, what we found is that, yeah, a lot of those really, really affected them in a, in a big way. Which brings me to the next point is that most of those actuating events, perhaps all, but I try to understate sometimes, those actuating events create beliefs. Beliefs like, this is normal. Beliefs like, man, I must have really deserved that. Beliefs like, I, I'm really messed up. Beliefs like, I don't deserve love. Like, I don't deserve being protected. I don't deserve this and that and the other. And that creates like an internal dialogue that just goes on and on and on. And it's, it's exhausting. The way that I talk to myself in a negative way just continues to, man, it will never shut up. I try to go to sleep and yap, yap, yap. It's yapping at me. I try to do something and yap, yap, yap. It's yapping at me. I can't concentrate. And for a number of people, being altered their first time is a real eye opener. Mm-hmm. Again, because if I've got that kind of internal dialogue going on and I get drunk, or even if I don't even get drunk, even if I just drink and I'm altered and my midbrain goes, oh, that feels good. And maybe it doesn't happen immediately, you know, right away or the next day or the next week or even the next year, but at some point it will happen again. And again, my midbrain is like, oh, that feels good. Let's do that again. Right. And what I'm doing is I'm conditioning my brain to be altered because during that time of altering, I don't hear that. Yep, 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 yep. I call it the vertical blender because if you can imagine things just kind of going round and round and round, it never shuts off. And when I get high or I get drunk, it shuts off or it goes away or I don't know what it does, but it doesn't bother me for a period of time. And I'm conditioning my brain to pay attention to that and to look for that and to say, yeah, let's do that again. What I'm doing is uh, I'm giving myself um, some sort of a reward that's based on what's going on is that um, my brain is like, oh, that feels good. Well, let's drink again or let's use again. The using or the drinking has nothing to do with that internal dialogue or or those beliefs or that trauma, but it it makes everything go away and it makes it feel good. And so I'm being, I'm being conditioned, I'm conditioning myself to seek that response. And when that happens, that's when it's no longer a choice. Because when that happens, what happens is that my drug of choice or addiction of choice winds up on that list. You know, the list that we talked about at first is a breathing. I got to have breath. I got I to have water, I have food, air, that, those kinds of things. My DOC, my addiction winds up number two. On the list. The reason why it's number two is because, and I ask um, groups, I said, so for those of you that have experienced addiction, my guess is that 
you have sacrificed all of these other things with the exception of air for your DOC. And invariably, 90% of the group's like, oh yeah, I know what that's like. Can't really sacrifice my breath for my drug of choice because then I wouldn't be here. And I tell the clients that too. It's like, you wouldn't be here either. So I'm glad you're here. People experiencing addiction understand that sacrifice my DOC for food or water or sex or shelter or sleep or anything like that. And that's why is because now my midbrain believes that my addiction is on my list of things it needs to survive. And it's going to do everything it can to seek that. And sometimes family members will come um, from a place of like frustration or anger, which is totally understanding because if I've been experiencing addiction for a year or 10 years or whatever, like I have lied, I have manipulated, I have stolen stuff. I've done all kinds of things in an effort to get my drug of choice. And people would say, well, they're just lying scumbags. Well, and this is where I'm going to digress for just a second. I have never called my clients addicts or alcoholics, and I never will. And the reason why I don't is because those are just labels based on behavior. And I like to differentiate the person from the behavior. I like to think that I'm not always my behavior. Sometimes I screw up and make mistakes and I prefer to consider myself a good man that's honest and sometimes I make mistakes. Well, that's true for everybody. And so I don't use those labels. It's important for me to also be consistent in that because it helps not only my clients, but their families understand that, yes, that behavior is troublesome, but it's not, it, it is, and it is the behavior that's troublesome. It's not the person. Um, and so in an effort to get family members in to understand addiction and what's going on, to me, that looks like, um, let's get everybody on the same team and fight the real enemy. The real enemy is not Chris. The real enemy is the addiction that Chris experiences. Mm-hmm. And if everybody on your team understands that and buys into that to some level, then holy cow, the efficacy of our efforts have j- has just gone through the roof. Because it's not Chris that's the problem. It's the behaviors that Chris exhibits. It's the addiction that Chris experiences. Because it's the addiction that feeds into those behaviors. It's Chris's midbrain saying, I gotta have this, I gotta have this. Yeah, and, and I, you know, that is, uh, I do have some empathy for the family members because because of what you said. They've they've sat and had their hearts broken over and over again by this person because of the addiction. And so, you know, it's easy to understand. I mean, that's them protecting themselves in a way from that behavior. This, this education is important um, because my family, fortunately, was very open-minded to all of this and understanding it. And, and Amy's a student of everything, so she dives into whatever. It made so much sense to me because, you know, I knew I loved you, but I didn't want you to use drugs. I didn't want you to drink because it led to negative consequences. And so as long as you were committed to making those changes, I was committed to supporting a whole new life. Because really that's what it came down for us is to to create a new life based upon sobriety. And based on what I just heard from you guys, I would say that's an argument for what I just said, is that sober Chris is awesome. 
sober Chris is a good dad and a good husband, or at least tries to be, (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, I mean, and I can go down the checklist, but altered Chris, altered Chris manipulates and lies and does whatever he feels like he needs to do to get that next, to get that next high. So again, to me, at least in my mind, that's a perfect argument for the fact that it's the behavior, it's it's the addiction that the person experiences and not the person themselves. Again, going back to our model, our, our brain model, and I think I might have failed to mention this, but like my prefrontal my prefrontal cortex, part of that is 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 my moral code. Maybe the soul, as you will. And I'm I'm not a neuroscientist in any way, and I'm and I'm not a, a student of uh, theology either, but like I can imagine a person's soul being in their prefrontal cortex. Like, what kind of a man am I? Am I a man who works hard? Am I a man who takes care of my family? Am I a man who's honest? Am I a man who's punctual or does what he says, except those kinds of things are in my prefrontal cortex. And so going back to the family's frustration about, well, ugh, my family member has stolen crap from me to you know feed their heroin habit or whatever. They're just a thieving scumbag. And I want to counter that with saying I, I get the frustration because, holy cow, either I go without this stuff or else I have to hunt it down in the pawn shop. That's frustrating. Whether he or she is an honest person or not is prefrontal cortex and the behavior that requires them or or leads them to stealing that stuff to feed their heroin habit is 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 midbrain and the midbrain doesn't care about my moral code the midbrain doesn't care that i'm just stealing you know thousands of dollars of football helmets from dad's den or whatever my midbrain doesn't care my midbrain only is interested in my survival and it believes with everything that it is that i need heroin to survive or alcohol or meth or whatever it is and so Asking the question, well, so you have all of this stuff going on, why don't you just stop drinking, is a question that's posed to my prefrontal cortex. And my prefrontal cortex says, no idea. My prefrontal cortex hears that question and says, yeah, I like, got nothing for you. It, it throws a blue screen, a Microsoft Windows blue screen. Right? I, I don't yeah. know. I got, I got yeah. a reboot. Talk Air. to the dude in the basement. He's the one with the issue. <laughs> I'm done with him. <laughs> Holy cow. And the part of my brain that and knows the answer, my midbrain, is so basic that it doesn't have access to thought. And so there's like this total disconnect between the question, what part of my brain can answer the question, and the part of my brain that's actually running the show and my midbrain is running the show while I'm in my addiction and everything's done on, on terms of survival. That's why I will do everything that I can in my addiction to continue to feed my addiction because my midbrain is telling me that I have to have this to survive. And that's why so much wreckage and oh man just just wreckage like crazy has done in addiction because it's it's all about survival and to prevent that wreckage or to look at that wreckage and go oh things aren't going very well here that requires midbrain action and if i'm in my addiction my midbrain has long been hijacked by my prefront or by my midbrain let me rephrase that 
if I'm in my addiction, my prefrontal cortex has long been hijacked by my midbrain. So how do we correct those thought processes? How do we tell the midbrain, hey, your job is to do this. You, you don't get to be in charge anymore. You get to still do your thing, but you get to, you get to go back to, to the emotions, I guess, and more of the kind of basics and prefrontal cortex. We want you to be more in charge and be more in alignment. That is an awesome question. That's an awesome question. And you used a word that is going to be key in the answer, emotions. I spell this all out and I have this on a board and I I tell the clients and their families. So, okay, so this is what's happening. And uh, for a lot of people, that makes a lot of difference because I see the lights come on like, oh, that's why I do this. Or from family members, oh, that's what's going on. And I say, okay, so Dennis, this is great. You've explained what's going on, but like, dude, give me some hope. Fair enough. I look at this model and I can say, you know, I'm really getting screwed by my midbrain. What the heck? Because my midbrain's taken over and it's just, it's ruining my life in the name of, of survival. Well, actually, it's my midbrain that's going to help me out because as we talked about earlier, maybe not specifically, but my prefrontal cortex is not at all emotional. My midbrain's very emotional. Again, the example that I used, scratching my back on a door frame, not necessarily an emotional experience, but kind of. Having sex, not necessarily emotional uh, uh, experience, but it could be. My midbrain's very emotional. And you'll notice that we made all of those lists of beliefs that I created because I had that trauma. I'm worthless. I'm a piece of crap. I don't deserve happiness. Um, I really must be messed up. There's an emotion attached to all of those. And so as a clinician with the assistance of the client, if we can make, as a, as a clinician with the client, if we can make connections between the emotion of those beliefs Uh, the emotion of the trauma and kind of identify those. Oftentimes the client on their own will create new beliefs because just the act of writing down, for instance, either on a paper or on uh, the dry erase board, like I'm not worthy of love or I'm a piece of crap or whatever. Most of the time clients would look at that and go, whoa, I do believe that. Whoa, that's really messed up. I don't want to believe that. And they'll change those beliefs on their own. Sometimes they'll ask for help, but oftentimes they'll be like, no, I deserve love. Uh, I am worthy of love. I love, yes, I I deserve love. And so um, if we can make those emotional connections between the traumas and the beliefs, oftentimes new beliefs can be created. And that interrupts that whole, that whole belief, drug of choice, survival, a list of things that I need to survive. My DOC being on that list of things to survive, it interrupts that whole thing. And I use the term interrupt because it doesn't take it away. I can't unlearn things. I can't unremember them. You know, unless I have a TBI or a lobotomy, um, it's going to be there. So that neural pathway is always going to be there. And I, and I liken neural pathways to like roads. If I'm in my addiction and I've been there for years or decades, 
that neural pathway is like a six lane freeway and it's awesome and it's smooth and there's no lines in the road and it's got nice lights and great pullouts and the billboards are stuff you want to look at. It's amazing and it's so easy to run down. The first time I choose something else other than getting higher drunk, that's like taking an off-road path. And maybe, you know, there's still grass, but it's like really rough and it's bouncy and it's just not quite so easy to, to travel. But every time I choose that neural pathway, the freeway gets broken down just a little bit more. And the freeway's never going to go away. You know, I don't know. There's, I, I drive back and forth to uh, Alberta usually once a summer, and there's a couple of uh, there's a couple of sections of road of I-15 where you can see the old highway that's like close to the freeway, and it's two lanes, and they've never tore up the blacktop. But like, wow, I wouldn't want to drive down it because there's like strips of like grass or weeds growing, and it's just it's broken down. It wouldn't be at all fun to drive. And those neural pathways are like that. They're never going to go away, but they're not as easy to take. And the more I take that Jeep trail neural pathway and the less I take that freeway pathway, the easier the Jeep trail is. So if I'm looking at one of my coping mechanisms rather than use is to reach out. I'm going to reach out to my sponsor. I'm going to reach out to my friend, Chris. Chris, holy cow, I'm craving. I've been thinking about getting drunk all day long that's traveling that Jeep trail. And the more I do that, the easier it is to travel that trail. Yeah. And I started hearing about these neural pathways when I first entered Turning Point. And and I will say it, it didn't quite register with me. I mean, I found it a little silly, but you know, I'm no uh, brain scientist or anything like that, but it's, uh, you know, what you're saying is, is legit. Uh, Not that you need my you don't need my re- positive reinforcement on that, but having practiced it and, and eventually grading those roads and, and eventually some of them are paved for me now. I mean, I still have roads that are rough, but require going down and, and the main neural pathway for me, which would be the nice six lane freeway is starting to break down and grow over. And, and um, one thing I, I want to just state on that is with the new neural pathways, they do take time to smooth those out to get around them. With that old one that's still sitting there, I would more liken that to you don't have to break that one back down. If you take that just once, you've repaved that and put that nice highway right back in place. I think a lot of people experiencing a relapse, and let's just distinguish the difference between a relapse and a lapse. Um and I don't know, that's a pretty subjective thing, but really a relapse would be like maybe a, a more extended period of use for for some people that might be days, for some people that might be weeks, but yeah, that, that lays another, that smooths out all of those cracks and, and, and that lays another thing of, of uh, blacktop down on that freeway. And so again, then I, I need to have some patience. I need to practice like crazy before that that new slab of blacktop I just laid down breaks up because it will, it just requires practice and patience. If I can get kind of personal on you and some of your listeners would know that meditation and mindfulness is very much a part of your recovery plan. And I would bet I'm just guessing 
that that's probably one of those new roads that's pretty smooth and might have a decent layer of road base and blacktop on it because it is my well-paved six-lane highway without a doubt and and again that's a that's why i'm so excited about recovery that's why i'm so adamant that recovery works because uh, a person with your experience and and it's been less than two years Correct. since you've been. Isn't that fantastic that I can listen to your experience in really early recovery, maybe a few weeks, maybe a few months, and I can listen to your experience and go, holy cow, I don't have to do this for five years or 10 years in order to have my default be back to use, back to use. Because again, I'm putting words in your mouth, but I'm betting that a lot of times you found your default to be mild, mindfulness and meditation. And I take a great deal of excitement and comfort in that. I think that offers hope to people to say, hey, I get it. Two years or 18 months or even a year is going to seem like forever. But let's put this into perspective. How long you've been using? You know, most people seeking treatment have been using for years. It might be like years that have gone really quickly because they don't have a lot of memory of it, or it might have drug on. It's just a miserable existence. Either way, though, it's just a matter of saying, hey, you don't, it's not something that we're promising you after years and years of practice. It really is only going to take months of practice. And I get it. Months sounds horrible if I've been sober for two weeks. I don't know. That's the reality of addiction is that I, I, I need to hope that I can have some patience to continue to practice until I'm proficient like you are at mindfulness and meditation. Well, but mindfulness being the key word is, you know, it still takes work. It's not like it just becomes more habitual. It becomes easier to travel, but it requires you to be on your game all day, every day. You know, it's not something that just gets fixed and off you go. It just has to become part of your daily routine. Right. It's less like riding a bicycle and more like playing the piano. I play the piano. Well, I used to. Um, and I'm seeing the keyboards right there. <laughs> Did I... not know this. <laughs> Leave that keytar alone, Dennis. <laughs> well, let's not get crazy. Because <laughs> the example that I'm going to give you, you're like, yeah, I'll stay away from the keyboards. And I've never been, I've never been really proficient. I, most, most of my repertoire is hymns. But Playing the piano, at least I found, is that I can lose that skill. Honestly, I'm, I'm looking back and I'm thinking, it's probably been six months since I've sat at a piano. And, uh, oh man, I probably wouldn't be very good at all right now. Now, if you gave me a couple of weeks of practice, I could be back to where I probably was when I was better. But... You know, when we talk about, well, it's riding a bicycle, you never forget. And my experience is, yeah, I get on a two-wheeled implement and I can ride it and it's not a problem. But playing piano creates uh, or needs a whole different set of brain function and muscle memory. And if I don't use it, it's going to erode. And so mindfulness or boundaries or communication or self-care, those are all things that need to be practiced if I'm going to stay proficient. So I guess you're going to be playing a duet after this the, <laughs> on the guitars, Dueling pianos. I can get down with that. Only if you want to hear how great thou art. So, 
I really appreciate this discussion on the mind because I think it's so important for people to understand the mental addiction component and how it also goes into the physical addiction side and and the lingering effects of thoughts and beliefs and emotions that go in with addiction. Do you have any parting wisdom and advice for families and loved ones that are trying to help their family member, loved one in addiction and, and in recovery? Immediately where my mind goes to is just back to what I said earlier is that I think it's really important to separate the person from the behavior that you're seeing. And I don't say that as excusing the behavior because behavior can't be, be excused. You know, if I, if I get drunk and I get behind the wheel and I hit somebody and I kill mom and dad and two kids, like their life has, well, their lives are ended. Everyone who knows them, their futures are altered as is mine. Like that can't be changed. That said, if, if I can separate the behavior from the person and look at the behavior as the problem and not the person, I think that's a really, really good start. And then kind of subsequent to that, I think boundaries are like so important. Yeah. So just that separation of the behavior and the person is like, I'd say the foundation on any input that I would give family members. And then the next thing that's just about as important would be boundaries. And boundaries are, I need to take care of myself. For a lot of family members, um, boundaries turn out to being, can I pick on you, Chris? Please. So Chris, you get to kill yourself with drugs and alcohol, but I don't have to stick around and watch you do it. And if this is my house, then there'll be an invitation for you to go do it someplace else. Or, you know, you know, or, or married couples like, okay, that's fine. If you're going to do this, that's fine. I'm going to go someplace else because I'm going to protect myself because I know that I cannot control anybody else's behavior. Now, I've noticed that there's some family members that are like, no, 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 no. If they're going to do drugs, I want them to do that. I want to do drugs in my basement. And again, they get. They, they get to feel that way. They get to do that. But to that mom, I would say, do you want to watch your son slowly kill himself? Because that's exactly what's going to happen as long as you give him a place to be. Because holy cow, if I'm in my addiction, what be- how much better up am I set if I have like a warm, dry place to be where I can use drugs all the time and as much as I want? And I'm not a mom, so I don't understand that. I mean, I don't understand that perspective. And some moms are like, nope, that's fine. He's going to kill himself in my basement. And they, they get to do that. But I think most family members, when it comes right down to it, they realize the futility of trying to control the addiction. And they understand that, yeah, I don't want to see this happen. And I have story after story after story of clients whose parents have said, nope, we are not going to watch you kill yourself. And if you want to do that, or if this is something that you're going to do, then go and do it. And we wish you well. And I hope that I will hear from you again, but I am going to protect myself and that I'm not going to watch you do that. And that kind of a thing alone has changed the life drastically of a number of people just to say, nope, this, I'm not going to allow this in my life. I need to protect myself. You know, if, if you want help, cool. I will help. 
I will, I will get you into detox or I'll get you into treatment. I'll pay for treatment or whatever it is. If, if a person's desirous of being enabling, that's what I would say would be that it would be something treatment related, but like giving a person a comfortable, safe and awesome place to just do drugs and kill themselves, I don't think is going to turn out very well. And boundaries are tough. I mean, that is not an easy thing to do. A few people that I've been in treatment with who've shared stories about their families setting boundaries on them, two of them have specifically said their mothers were looking at them like it was the last time they would ever see them when they dismissed them from their lives. And it was a changing moment for both of them. They didn't change immediately, but it was what really kind of reset that trajectory for them to eventually go, I've, I've got to get help. This is going to kill me. My mom just said goodbye to me for the last time, as far as she's concerned. So I know boundaries are tough, but uh, Amy's, I, li- Amy's I like real, boundaries. <laughs> yeah, Amy's a real expert on boundaries. I speak passionately about boundaries myself is because I spent a good deal of my adult life not really knowing what they are. And I'm a people pleaser. Um, one of my core issues is everybody has to like me. And if I tell you no, then you might not like me. And that's really uncomfortable for me. So boundaries were really, really tough. And they still are. They, I, I'm getting proficient at them. Um, and luckily, I've worked with uh, some supervisors who are wonderful and some peers that have kind of helped me understand that, you know, Dennis, you're co-signing on somebody else's BS. And I've learned that that's not helping them. So... When somebody, if a family member says to me, oh man, I can't do that. Like, I don't know exactly how that feels because I don't have a son or daughter that's in addiction, but I can imagine how that feels because I know how setting boundaries was for me when I first started setting them. So I have a lot of empathy and compassion for the parent that says, oh man, I can't just turn them out on the street. I have, I have empathy and compassion for them. Um, But I also know that, like you said, and I'm thinking of one particular story in mind that where this individual has over three years sobriety and the reason why he sought treatment the last time was because his family said goodbye to him with a look in their eyes that the next time they see him, he would be in a pine box. And that had a profound and moving effect on him. And well, the proof is in the pudding and, and this person that I'm thinking about has three years sober now. In another 10 years, I have every confidence that it'll be 13 years sober. And I believe that's the same, one of the same ones that I'm speaking of. I know the story well and it, when he shared it, it moved me. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on oh, this thank episode. You for, thank you we, for having me. We're just so grateful for what you've done for our family and for Chris. I know you've been with him since the beginning when he arrived at Turning Point. I think you were the on-call clinician at that time. And I did your assessment, right? You did. Mm. Mm-hmm. And you Game of 200 questions with Dennis. <laughs> he walked out and he's like, this guy's in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I did not, I assure you. But just thank you so much. And we wish you the best on your new position with Dear Hollow. Please keep in touch with us. We... We'd love to have you back sometime on our podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I hope to uh, I hope to stay in contact with uh, Turning Point alumni. I, I hope that I'll, I'll get a chance to stop in on a Wednesday night once or twice a month because you folks are make me better. I, I'm 
so much better for having known you all. It's uh, it's a two-way street there, for sure. Um, we gain a lot from your wisdom, and I mean that. I think you know how much you mean to me and, and how much I care for you, and I can assure you um, you'll still have contact with at least one turning point alone. <laughs> Outstanding. So thank you, Dennis. Yes, thank you. And good luck in your new travels. Thank you. All right. So I think we should, uh, before we adjourn... Our song that Chris picked, I think your go-to pick for this. Praga Khan, My Mind is My Enemy, is the song for this episode. And I was uh, pleased to learn that uh, this was not a prodigy song. I always thought it was a prodigy song, but it's not. Yeah, it's Praga Khan. Get it straight. <laughs> Take a listen. There we go.